Just by a show of hands, how many of you out there have ever been involved in an apprenticeship? Like you've been an apprentice in some program or under someone else? Anyone ever done an apprenticeship? Yeah? Or an intern? Yeah. Aaron, what was your apprenticeship under? Like what? Okay. Worship internship. Yeah. Someone else that raised a hand. Um, what's another field that you interned or was an apprentice? Violin. Okay. So you apprentice under a master or somebody who's better than you? Ben. Absolutely, and we have lots of teachers in this room, right? So student teaching, LL, healthcare. healthcare, yeah. And Connor, I saw your hand go up. Same thing, residency, right? Being a doc, great. What, when you started off as an apprentice, I'm a stupid question, right? Like, were you expected to be a master yet? No. Were you expected to uh, to be proficient on your own? Okay. So, you, you, what were some of the elements of, of apprenticing that uh, uh, your master, um, how did they help you learn your craft? By watching. So, you observed? Studying limits. limits. Okay. Daily practice. Okay, so it's a little bit of teaching and uh, underpinning of what you're about to do. Great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A a good um, apprenticeship, you know, there's some key elements like explanation of what you're about to do or the the task you're going to do, and then there's there's, uh, observation and practice non-critical skills first, right? Like, uh, Chad, uh, they didn't have you practice C-sections probably first thing, right? Like, okay, thank, thank goodness. And then you move up to more complexity. If you contrast that general experiences of those who have had apprenticeships um, with the show The Apprentice, it's quite a, quite a different thing, right? Because in The Apprentice, you've got this high stress, high expectation. You've got apprentices on that show with super huge egos, especially celebrity apprentice. And, and, and kind of the buzzword of that show is, you're fired. It should have been titled The Apprentice Sith Lord edition or the working interview, right? Rather than the apprentice. Because in an apprenticeship, you, you, you don't, you're, the goal isn't to fire people. And the goal isn't to expect them to be perfect right away. It's to teach them and to train them. In a true apprenticeship, there's a relationship. There's an environment of learning and trying and making mistakes and then correcting those mistakes, right? Every one of us in some way, shape, or form, has been an apprentice. You all have done this because it starts when you're a child. You begin life observing for months before you can even talk. You begin to take in the ethos of your family, the way it all works, before you contribute to the ethos of your family. You observe the lived-out expectations and values of your parents and your home before you comprehend what the spoken values actually are. And as you go or grow, you go through stages of trial, error, increasing responsibility until you're ready to make a go of it on your own. In a more formal apprenticeship, like learning a trade, there's often some form of, I explain, you listen. I do, you watch, then we debrief. You do, I watch, then we debrief more. You do and become proficient, 
We debrief and collaborate because now we're getting to be peers. And finally, you pass on your experience, your expertise into someone else. And that's when you know you've really mastered something. This evening, we're going to look at a text where Jesus, the master, takes his apprentices to the next level in their development. And if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The story goes like this. He called together the twelve and gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing on your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out of that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began to going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said to himself, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man of whom I hear so much about? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, But the crowds were aware of this, and they followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now, the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, "'Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place.' But he said to them, "'You give them something to eat.' And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them sit down, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, and he broke them, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And their broken pieces, which they had left over, were picked up. Twelve baskets full. Twelve baskets full. Lord, thank you for this word. As always, we thank you that this is more than just a historical story. More than even something that actually happened. But this is a living word. And so by the power of your spirit, would you open our minds and open our hearts not only to understand, but to stand under. To be receptive and obedient to what it is you're saying. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Many times in our culture, and I'm talking even Christian culture, when we hear the word discipleship, we, I think we wrongly think of the process of learning information, learning facts, concepts, techniques. We equate discipleship sometimes with learning about God 
or about the Bible, or about theology, or about the Trinity. But that type of discipleship defined in that way, learning information about these things, would have been unrecognizable to Jesus and to the early church. A better term for discipleship, I think, is apprenticeship. While apprenticeship requires learning information, we've discussed that a little bit already, it emphasizes just as fervently the importance of applying that information, of practicing with that information. Disciples or apprentices of Jesus don't just learn about Jesus, they come to know Him. They don't just learn about what He did in the past, as important as that is, but what He wants to do in and through His apprentices in the present. The text we're going to focus on this evening involves an event that is so important, it is the only miracle recorded pre-resurrection by all four of the gospel writers, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this text is full of meaning for many different reasons. You'd imagine, uh, I, you know, you could preach it in, in, in many, many different ways. In fact, I've preached this passage in Matthew's gospel two times here, and in John's version, I preached it one time here, so you, you've got to take it all kinds of different ways. In Matthew's gospel, for instance, he seems to emphasize that Jesus is more than enough that the disciples are emphasizing they don't have enough, and Jesus is providing more than enough. And in John's gospel, there's this theological edge where he's describing himself as the bread of life. You, you think you're hungry for these worldly things? I have more than just bread to give you. I am the bread of life, okay? And I think uh, we're, we're going to observe this passage from Luke's perspective. And I think one of the ways that Luke is presenting this passage to us is through the lens of an apprentice, and so I know we have our, uh, our cohort kids up, but everybody, this would be good exercise. As we work through this passage together, the feeding of the 5,000, think to yourselves, what is he trying to teach his apprentices? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, or if you're considering what it would look like to be a follower of Jesus, what can we learn about apprenticeship under Jesus today by reading this passage together? All right, let's, let's dig in. Up to this point, Jesus has been instructing them through preaching and teaching. He's been instructing his apprentices because they've been watching his prayer life and his interactions with diverse groups of people. They've seen his works of power, and most recently, in the beginning of chapter 9, he sent them off on their very first mission, and he gave them authority to have uh, power over demons and to heal those who needed healing. That's pretty awesome. For this first mission, he's trying to teach them to trust in him and in him alone. So if you remember, I just read that passage. Um, he sends them off without a staff, okay? So no protection, okay? And, and he sends them out with just one tunic, not even two tunics. He sends them off with no money, just so that they have to rely on God's provision and the hospitality of other people. And he sends them away to other villages so that they're away from their vast social network as Eastern Mediterranean people would have, okay? So he sent them out with nothing, which is not prototypical of, of the Jesus people in the early church, but he wants to really teach them to trust him alone, not on their stuff, not on their crutches, Okay, and it was a smashing success. The disciples come back. They eagerly report all they had done to Jesus. They had worked so hard. They had been stretched beyond their comfort zones, and now it was time for rest. 
Jesus took them away on a little retreat, we might call it. He put his auto-reply on the email. He uh, forwarded his calls to his secretary, whatever he did back then. Uh, Everything was ready for this retreat. The disciples weary. Oh, Jesus is going to take us away. And then life as an agent of the kingdom of God happened to them. The crowd showed up. Thousands of people. They followed Jesus into the wilderness. You know, it's one thing to work hard and to take a risk when you're planning on doing that. You know, I could see them getting all worked up for this mission. All right, Jesus has gave us these awesome powers to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and we're ready, we're planning on this mission. That's one thing, right? It's quite another thing when you're weary and tired and at the end of your physical rope, and then... And then all of this busyness happens. Jesus has a decision to make at this point. We've seen him do it before. He could have said to these crowds, you know what, my guys have to rest. Self-care. We need to do some self-care. Or he could choose to take his apprentices to the next level. That's exactly what he does. He is going to teach them to trust in the provision of God when their last scraps of physical strength and patience are gone. Let's just say even Master Yoda is a Padawan in the presence of Jesus. Ever the master teacher of his apprentices, Jesus takes them to school in this moment. The first thing we observe is his way with the, with the needy crowds. The other Gospels record that Jesus has compassion on them, and that's an important detail. But Luke adds the detail that Jesus welcomed them. It isn't just, oh man, I feel bad for these folks, I'll do something for them. This is a recognition that these crowds are seeking Jesus, they're seeking the way of life. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, you guys can tag along, but he welcomes them, he shows them hospitality. There's a difference there. You know when you're just a tag-along, right? And when someone actually says, no, no, come on in. I, I, I welcome you here. That's what Jesus did with these crowds. And the disciples are watching this. Right? This is teaching. Second, we notice what he does with them. He teaches them about the kingdom of God, and he began to cure and heal those who needed curing and healing. It's a very important detail, especially when you consider what happens next. Here's the scene. It's about dusk. The sun is going down. Literally, it says the day was ending. The apprentices could see that there's about to be a problem. They are in the wilderness, literally a desolate place. No villages, no food, no shelter. Over 5,000 people are there without provisions and rightly thinking, I I think, uh, we're about, they're thinking we're about to have a problem here. Any of you ever taken a three-year-old to the zoo and forgot your snack bag? That's about ready to happen here with grown-ups, okay? Like, uh, they're going to get hangry. And uh, anyway, the apprentices go to Jesus, and they tell Jesus to send the people away. Now, these guys, the apprentices, the 12 disciples, must have been really grumpy because they blow etiquette out of the water, and they use an imperative form of the verb send. They tell Jesus, their master, which is a big no-no. You don't tell the rabbi. And that's just if he's a rabbi. He's the son of God. They tell him, send these guys away. They need to go get their own food. 
Jesus turns to his apprentices and gives them a command, a challenge. You give them something to eat. Now, they're totally tired and likely spent. And even though they had just successfully completed a mission trip in the power and authority of Jesus, even though they had seen him calm the sea and raise the dead daughter of Jairus, they are stuck in worldly thinking. Because isn't that what we do when we are tired and fatigued? And it's not hard to believe that they would lack faith here. Has God ever worked in your life? I hope you can see a place where God has worked at least once in your life. Has he ever provided for you or healed you or someone that you love? And yet the next time a challenge comes up, are you with me, uh, will he do it again? And you know, as time goes on from those moments of God intervening, sometimes don't we rationalize like, well, maybe that was just dumb luck. Or maybe I was going to get better anyway. You know, we do that. We doubt as time goes on. These apprentices who have just returned from a mission trip where they're told by the master to bring no money or possessions quip back, we only have five loaves and two fish. What should we do? Go buy food for them? You told us not to bring money. Right? Remember, they just came off the mission trip. They haven't gone back home to get their money. So they're literally penniless and Jesus is telling them to give the crowd something to eat. I think it's kind of funny. A little bit testy, but funny. Plus, they know that they can't buy food. There are no stores. There's nowhere to buy food when the sun goes down. People baked bread in the morning and made enough for the day. That was it. Where are they going to get food for 5,000 people? So there they are in the desert, and Jesus takes the food they do have, the five loaves and the two fish, and he gives thanks to the Father, and he breaks it, or he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it, and he gives it, and he gives it, and he gives it. And as the story goes, each person ate until they, until they were full, and still there are 12 baskets left over full of food in the desert. No food. God provides miraculously. Have you ever heard of a story like that before? Yell it out. Exodus, Exodus thank you. Thank you. That's our series in the fall, the last three years, people. Um, yeah, Moses in the Exodus, the people were wandering in the wilderness, and God provides manna and quail from heaven to feed his people. The main difference in the Exodus story is that God provided for the people daily, and he says, if you store up anything extra, it's going to just like basically rot in your hands, okay? It'll be nasty. Maggots will come and get it. And, and so it was just enough for each day. But in this story, it's even more abundant. There's an abundance of leftovers. And in the Exodus story, the Israelites were to eat their fill uh, just for that day, uh, but then it all goes away. So what is Jesus teaching his disciples here? Okay, wait for it. And if you have your Bibles, Luke 9, 11. Luke 9, 11. We, we read it. What is Jesus teaching about? Anyone in Luke 9, 11, what is Jesus teaching about? Luke 9, 11. The kingdom of God, Frank is the winner. The kingdom of God. That is, that the kingdom or the reign of God has come near. That in Jesus, in his person, the reign of God 
has been made flesh. It is localized in him. That wherever Jesus is, evil can't stand it. The demons flee. Wherever Jesus is, the creation obeys him. Wherever Jesus is, he touches and the broken things are healed. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Now check this out. It's so good. Ian just read from Isaiah 25. And in that passage, it's one of the many pictures of the kingdom of God. And in this picture of the kingdom of God, which is repeated about three different times in Isaiah to some degree, uh, one of the, the metaphors is a banqueting table where God invites his people and he provides food for them, overflowing food and deliverance from their enemies. So we've got deliverance from enemies, Exodus, banquet and provision, food in the desert place, and creating that food out of five loaves and two fish, only stuff God can do. Could it be, I'm just saying, that God is visiting his people in this moment? Could it be that the kingdom of God is breaking in right in front of these apprentices and the crowds of hungry people? I'm thinking, what else could it be? This is amazing. Now, here's another crazy detail. There's strict religious guidelines about how one ate and who one could eat with. So, for example, some rabbis taught that before you even said a blessing over the food, you were supposed to first wash your hands ceremonially, because they didn't even know about germs back then. It was religious. It was ceremonial washing before you could say the blessing, before you could eat the food. Okay? Think they had any water out there? No. There's no washing of hands. Now, on top of that, people who were unclean for any reason should not have been allowed to eat food provided by a rabbi or a religious leader, let alone the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet Jesus welcomes this crowd to eat with him, to eat food he provided for them. Now think about this. Out of the 5,000 men listed, not even accounting the women and children that were likely there, there had to be some, right, who were unclean. Unclean because of sins committed. Unclean because of different biological discharges and things like that. Unclean because of social standing or ethnicity. And we know that Jesus, right, it said in the passage that he healed some of these people. Now, when you're healed, say, of leprosy or some disease like that, it still took seven days before you were ritually clean again. So here, he's welcoming to the table a feast he's providing to even unclean people. All that, my point is that Jesus is breaking down the walls of those who are invited to the banqueting table of God. The boundaries Listen to this. This is important for you too. The boundaries of entrance into the kingdom of God are not performance, are not physical health, are not adherence to ceremonial law. All of those things are fine, but the only prerequisite to joining the kingdom of God is trust in the host, Jesus. Only prerequisite. Isn't that good news? That's so good news for you and for me, and it's good news for our friends and neighbors. It's good news for those people that we love and care about in our world. We have, I, I hope you're excited about that, because if you're ever wondering, like, yeah, I'm not good at this evangelism thing, people don't want to hear what I have to say. You guys, it's such good stuff that we have to share with people. Now, of course, people that aren't thinking in terms of kingdom of God and all that stuff, you don't just say, hey, guess what? You're invited to the banqueting table of the kingdom of God in Isaiah 25. But, but you do have something good to offer that God loves your friends and your neighbors, your family members that you might perceive to be very far from God. He loves them. 
And he wants them to know that they uh, can come to him and that they can be made new. And so can you. These apprentices are learning that Jesus is the way to the kingdom, not how they dress, not how they speak, not what color our skin is or what social class we come from. The only thing that matters is allegiance to Jesus. But there's more to their training than the concept of the kingdom and who's invited. The second thing we observe about how Jesus trains his apprentices is that he includes them in his work. How easy would it have been for Jesus to solve the hunger problem in that moment? For Jesus to say, fear not, I will rescue you. I will provide this food for you. For Jesus to have everyone line up, 5,000 people, he could probably get away with doing like two lines of 2,500 and just have his baskets refilling. And that way everyone would see, hey, it's Jesus, and he would get every glory, and, and he could just do, or, I mean, it's Jesus, he could just like, I don't know, teleport food in their stomachs or, or just like brainwash them into thinking they're not hungry. I don't know. You can do so many different things, but that's not the point of the story. Instead, Jesus chooses to work with, in, through his apprentices. You know, sometimes we read this story as if the disciples were clueless and Jesus is like rolling his eyes at them or something. I believe to some degree Jesus is proud of them. Here's a group of 12 dudes who were just out on a strenuous mission. They're coming back exhausted and they actually recognize like these people are hungry, Lord. They need food and they're not wrong. They're not wrong to know that they needed food and they're not wrong to care that they get food. They're just kind of misguided in in forgetting that Jesus could actually do it, right? I bet you Jesus is to some degree thinking, hey, at least some of my teaching is rubbing off on these guys. They're at least compassionate. But now he wants to show them that they can be part of the solution. He has them organized into groups of 50, and that's a significant detail. I don't know about you, but from my, first of all, you know I'm a little OCD, kind of organized in some parts of my life. And, and when I imagine the scene of groups of 50, I don't know about you, but like from my 21st century perspective, I'm thinking rows of, uh, you know, five rows of 10 chairs that are those, those kind of interlock like the ones we have in there, and they're just perfect rows of 50, and that way, you know, you could just pass the baskets down. By the way, I was kind of, Janet Russell and I were in charge of... Uh, serving communion at the joint worship gathering. I thought that went pretty smooth, right? Those were, those were the rows of roughly 154 people, and we had it all figured out. <laughs> so that's how my, my mind works. And then I remembered, no, 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 no. These are first century Near Eastern people. This was controlled chaos. When Jesus is saying uh, around 50, he's probably getting amorphous blobs of roughly 30 to 70 people, and the disciples are in the midst. I mean, if you've ever been in this type of culture before there's no personal space like they're probably bumping up and people are grabbing and it's just it's just a different thing than we're used to look at us in our pews right now we're so this makes me happy actually (laughs) But, but these groups of 50 did make things more manageable but it also ensured that these groups were small enough where people would interact with each other, but they're large enough to where nobody was overwhelmed and alone. You know, you can be alone by being alone, but you can also just as easily be quite isolated and alone in a huge crowd because nobody really notices you. But in a nice 50-ish crowd, you know, you can have community there. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the points that Jesus is making. The apprentices 
or participating in the kingdom work. And while kingdom work is personal, like every belly had to get full, it's, it's not private. Okay, kingdom work is personal. It's not private. Individual bellies are getting filled, but a community was being formed. And I think both of those purposes are important. And that's, that's kingdom work. Part of the great mystery of the kingdom of God, I think, is that Jesus chooses to work through those apprentices and through you and me in order to carry out his mission. (laughs) It's not efficient. It is not efficient. And it's probably not as effective as if Jesus just healed everyone and snapped his fingers and ended world hunger and brainwashed everyone to get along. I got to just share, last night, oh man, it's so funny, we had this cohort thing, and like, the, kid, the kids were supposed to guess if a parent, what superpower we wanted, and a couple of the kids said, I bet you my parent would want the superpower to make us get along, right, like, not a bad idea, actually, I was thinking more flight, but, uh, but, but you know, couldn't, couldn't God just, like, make us get along, well, of course he could. But if his plan was simply to have a world where nothing happened or where people acted more like lobotomized robots, he never would have created us in the first place. Yes, because we have a will and creative imagination and the power of our intellect, there is a lot of damage we can do to each other and a lot of damage we can do to the world. But we are also capable of amazing works of beauty and creativity and construction and glory. And I think that that's why Jesus brings his apprentices into his work. It isn't so much to get the work done. It's because when we participate in the work, we not only help other people, but we become more shaped into his likeness. We become more human, and we begin to thrive in doing what we were meant to do, be image bearers of the living God. Is there something, as we've been looking at this story, something you've recognized for some time now that Jesus has been calling you to do or to be? Something he might be showing you? Something he might be inviting you into? Maybe, maybe to your mind or to your friends it seems impossible. And maybe it seems too big or too inefficient or too outside your comfort zone. Maybe it's way beyond your resources. If it's from God, it probably is. But this passage says to us in so many words, don't worry. The one who multiplies bread and fish is the one who can accomplish more than you could ever ask or think or imagine. Which is the third main lesson I see Jesus teaching his apprentices in this passage. He provides. He is the one who does the work. He invites us to be his hands and his feet and his mouthpieces of his ministry, but it is his resources the apprentices rely upon, and that's how it works with us as well. In the story, Jesus provides the bread and the fish. The disciples simply organize the distribution of it, and they also become the faces of the ministry. The people eating the food are interacting with the apprentices of Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus is the source of all of our financial resources. He's the provider of our intellect, our creativity, our skills and experiences. Every single good thing that we enjoy is from him. So he not only calls us into meaningful and sometimes difficult work, he also provides and equips 
and he paves the way for us. Jesus is teaching his first disciples, his apprentices, to trust and rely on him. And in that moment, it was a lesson to rely on his faithfulness and power to do what seemed impossible. In time, they would come to know that Jesus is the one to trust for life itself. That he not only provides fish and bread to the hungry or healing to the diseased, he also provides new life for the shameful, freedom to the addicted, forgives the sinner, and he provides life that death can't even take away or decay. Maybe you're here today hungry for Jesus to be your journeyman, your king, your source of life, your provider. Then like the crowds in the story, come, come to him. Maybe you've been in the crowd long enough. Maybe you've trusted him to be your provider for some time, but now you're ready to enter his school, to be his apprentice, to learn the ways of the way. Then come, hear him calling, hear him drawing us to be his apprentices. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this word. Oh, such good news. Thank you, first of all, that you are the king of the kingdom of God and not someone else. Thank you that it's you because you are so gracious and good. You are holy and you are safe. Bless you for that amazing mixture that no human being uh, could fulfill. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just pat us on the head and say, I forgive you. But that is just the beginning of a new life that you offer us. You offer us an apprenticeship to show us how to live in this new world that you've created. Would you help us to have eyes that see and ears that hear? Help us to be full of humility about who we really are and full of joy about who you're creating us to be. Bless you, Lord.